shadow six more months in First John. So uh, that's good as we're making progress through this book. Uh, I intend today uh, to uh, tell you, I want to begin by telling you about Perry and Sandy Downs and their experience in the Illinois State Foster Care System. Now, um, I have told you this story before I know that, but it sticks in my mind. And another thing that you should know is that we are in our church enthusiastic supporters of our foster and adoptive parents. We celebrated two adoptions uh, in this last year. I hope we anticipate, uh, anticipate two more this year. Uh, we're always happy to welcome our foster children into our nurseries, into our Sunday school classes. The story that I'm going to tell you ends happily. We know, though, that not every story like this ends as well. Uh, Perry Downs taught uh, seminary students at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School outside Chicago, Illinois for 40 years. And for most of those 40 years, he and his wife, Sandy, were foster parents. Over the years, uh, dozens of children, most of them infants, came into their home. They came when they were newborns or just a few days old, and they left their home when uh, they entered the adoption process. Uh, one time, several years ago, the foster care agency called the Downs and asked them if they would be willing to take two uh, twin, twin 18-month-old boys. They were hesitant. <laughs> this is older than most of the children they'd taken to their home, but uh, they were willing to do it. The agency said, don't worry, it'll be about six months. Just six months they'll be in your house. So they took these uh, boys to their home. The first night they put them into bed, uh, th they were surprised because it was very, very quiet in that room. You would think 18-month-old children, new place, very strange. So Perry peeked in and discovered that both of the boys were lying in their beds weeping silently. What had happened was that these children had been beaten in homes that they had been in before for crying, so they had learned to cry silently at night. In fact, uh, the Downs were a home was the ninth placement that these boys had through the system. And they discovered before they actually went into the Downs home, they tested these boys and found out that they were just irredeemably damaged, irredeemably emotionally and intellectually broken. Well, the boys uh, ended up staying with the Downs for two years. They were told six months. It was actually two years. I think that's how foster care uh, time works. I have to convert it. Um, it. One and a half to three and a half. Think about that, raising these boys from those ages. Those are the tough, tough, tough parenting years. Except for all the rest, those are the hardest ones. <laughs> right? Uh, and the Downs loved these boys. They were patient with them. They were kind. They were consistent. Everything that toddlers so desperately needed. And by the end of the two years, when the boys, when they had en were about ready to enter the adoption process, they retested those boys, and they were both within the normal range for all their emotional and intellectual development. See, not every story works that well. I know that. Not every story works that well, but it does remind us that growth, healthy, physical, emotional, uh, uh, intellectual growth, demands love. To reach maturity, every person, every human being needs love. Uh, the same is true of us when it comes to our spiritual development, which is probably one of the reasons why the Apostle John wrote so much about God's love. And one of the peaks of his first letter, he invites his readers to gaze on God's love. He says, see 
or behold, look at the great love the Father has lavished on us. And he writes about that love over and over and over again because if human beings are going to grow as followers of Jesus, we need love. Now, we're moving slowly through 1 John. We've finally come to chapter 4. Actually, we're going to finish, I believe, chapter 4 today. And to no one's surprise, guess what the theme is? Love. Love. More specifically, we're going to talk today about love at the crossroads. That is, I want to show you in the Bible how John connects love with so many of the other themes that come up in his letter. In fact, uh, themes that are in the Bible itself. Here's what love produces. Here's what love does. Here's how God's love brings us to maturity. Do you want to know if you really understand God's love or do you want to know the extent to which you understand God's love? Here are the signs of how mature love or love that understands God's, uh, or maturity that understands God's love, how it manifests itself. Uh, Three ways. Do you want to hear what they are? Let's start, shall we? First, We're going to talk about the intersection of love and truth. Love and truth. That's the topic in 1 John 4, 13 to 16. So read these verses. You follow along as I read them. 1 John 4, 13 to 16. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them, and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in them. Now I confess that I struggled a little bit following John's uh, train of thought. Listen and see if this makes sense to you. All right, so starting in verse 7 of chapter 4, John starts to write about God's love. He argues on the basis of who God is, that God is love, and he argues on the basis of what God has done. He sent his son that we are, that followers of Jesus ought to love one another. But then in verses 13 to 15, he kind of detours a little bit and returns again to the truthfulness of the appearance of Jesus, God's son. You have to confess that. You must believe that, he says. And then he returns to love again. Now, why the detour into this truthfulness about Jesus' coming? Why does he do that? I think it's because he has already argued in verse 9 that the pinnacle of God's love, how do we know what love is? We know God's love because God sent his son. And that is a truth that we can trust absolutely. In other words, our experience of the love of God is rooted in the coming of the Lord Jesus. That historical event that happened uh, 2,000 years ago uh, when he was born in Bethlehem, that specific time, specific place, that is a, a, an evidence, the pinnacle evidence of the love of God. How do we know he came? Two ways we know he came. We, came, we know he came because of the Spirit and we know because of the testimony of the eyewitnesses. So, I'll say it again. Let me say it again. God is love. How do we know God is love? He sent his son. 
How do we know he sent his son? Because there are eyewitnesses who saw him, and we have the testimony of the Spirit of God himself. Our experience of the love of God is rooted in the truth of these claims. If Jesus did not come, if he is not God the Son, if you will not confess it, you have cut yourself off from the pinnacle expression of God's love. You can't know God's love unless you know that he sent his son to be the savior of the world. Uh, last week I visited Frances Hershey at her home at St. John's Her uh, Estate in Columbia. Frances is going to be 91, I think, next week, very soon. And we talked about the challenges of old age. Frances said, you really have no idea until it strikes you and you think about all the things that you used to be able to do and remember much more easily than you can now. So I told her about an experiment that my wife uh, did when she was in college. Uh, the nursing faculty was trying to help these nursing students, these young, energetic, competent adults, trying to teach them about some of the challenges that some of their senior patients would be facing. So they uh, put, uh, had them put on a thick pair of gloves and shove cotton balls in their ears and put on goggles that obscured part of their vision, and then they gave them a bottle of pills and said, get out the red one, the red pill, get the red one out. They had to use their gloves and their bad vision to, to follow the instructions. It was not easy. When you disconnect God's love from the truthfulness of the account that the Bible gives us of his son, it's like trying to understand God's love with gloves and cotton in your ears. That's the overall argument of these verses. Yes, God is love. Well, how do we know God's love? Because he sent his son. And how do we know he sent his son? Because of the spirit and the eyewitnesses. It's truth that you can trust. And if, if God's love is maturing in you, you will come to value and delight in that truth. Now, that's the overall argument of those verses. Does that make sense of how, what he does here in, these pa in this passage? Let, let's talk about the details. He starts in verse 13 again by saying, this is how we know. Oh, how many times has that phrase showed up in John's letters? He's writing to assure them of the genuineness of their faith. And then he uses this phrase that appears multiple times. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. It's going to show up a lot in these verses. He lives in us and we're in him. That's astounding. The mutual indwelling of God. It, it's the way that John can describe what it's like to have a real relationship with him. It's, it's what Jesus prayed for in John 17, 26. He said, I have, made known to, I, have made known, I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and I myself may be in them. It's an astounding possibility. Think about the stages of your romance with your beloved. When you first start dating your beloved, you, be, you, you start by wondering what they're thinking. Then as your relationship grows, you know what they're thinking. And as your relationship matures, you start to think like they're thinking. Right? They, they, they get into your head. They're in you. Um, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. Now, this verse is very much like the end of chapter 3. Look back at the end of chapter 3, verse 24. The last couple of lines, 
Look what it says, First uh, John 3:24, just the last two lines. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. It's interesting, almost two identical verses, 3.24 and uh, 4.13. Uh, now, when we read chapter 3 a few weeks ago, I said I, I, wasn't, um, I wasn't certain what he meant. We're not, we're not too certain. How do we know that, that we have a relationship with God? We know it by the Spirit. Okay, well, what does that mean? Um, the presence of the Spirit, some sort of sign. Some people believe that it's a miraculous sign, like speaking in tongues or being able to prophesy. That, that's how we know we have the Spirit, and therefore we know we have a real relationship with God. Danny Aiken says that the presence of the Spirit is some sort of conscious awareness of His presence. I'm not sure that's right. Uh, I'm not sure either of those ideas are right. I have another suggestion for you. Um, in chapter 3 and in chapter 4, John mentions the Spirit, and then immediately in both places, he, he follows it by a strong affirmation that Jesus is God's Son. So how do we know we live in Him and He lives in us? We have the Spirit. And then immediately there is this Jesus has come in the flesh. I think the presence of the Spirit, based on that, I think the presence of the Spirit is made known in a church, in a person, by the glad affirmation of Jesus Christ. By the gladness, the Spirit is the one who opens our eyes so that we can see the truth the apostles preached and and the, the truth the Bible teaches about the Lord Jesus. That's how you know the Spirit is at work. He convinces us about the identity of the Lord Jesus. Your belief in the truth is evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's it's not just belief in the sort of a mental agreement sort of way. James James says that that demons believe. Um, He uses in verse 15 the word acknowledge. That's a fine translation. It's a little weak maybe. Does your translation say confess in verse 15? It might. If anyone confesses, that's, that's better. Here's my translation. If anyone owns the truth, it's an expression we use, right? You own it. You own the truth that Jesus is the Son of God. It's more than mental agreement. It's, it's owning it. It's, it's delighting in it. It's, it's having it for your own. That's what the Spirit does. He, he brings us to that point. Now, I mentioned ago, um, a few seconds ago, James says that the demons see, they, they agree with the truth. I just started, because of my, uh, my Bible reading program, I started the Gospel of Mark. You know what's astounding? The people, the, the people in the, the Gospels who are the quickest to identify who Jesus is and recognize him are demons. It's not the disciples. So the Jewish religious teachers is demons. They, every time Jesus shows up, the demons say, I know who you are. I know who you are. They're, you're the son of God. In fact, what's interesting, they have this question. I know who you are. You're the son of God. Why have you come? What are you here for? The demons know that when the Lord Jesus comes, judgment is coming. And I think in the Gospels, they're wondering, who, I know who you are. Why are you here? Is now the time that you're going to judge us? What they didn't know is that the first coming was not about judgment, that's the second coming. But, but they see him and they're af- af- afraid. I suppose that's a little bit of a tangent. The word confess, the word acknowledge here, includes the idea of gladness. Glad submission to the truth. Rejoicing in it. Seeing the beauty of it. That's what the Spirit does. 
There are two ways, at least two ways, to go to the Grand Canyon. One way to go to the Grand Canyon is to stand over the Grand Canyon and look at it and speak its facts. I know how high it is. I know how wide it is. I know how long it is. That's one way to go to the Grand Canyon. The right way to go to the Grand Canyon is to stand over and say, Wow! Wow! And the Spirit sets before us the Lord Jesus, and the Spirit says, Wow! Wow! This is God's Son. That's what the Spirit does. The Spirit also, though, helps us understand the eyewitnesses that John is writing about here in verse 14. You see, it says in 1 John 4:14, We have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. If you've ever been through Sparks in our Awana program, you know this verse. Because the, uh, all of our kindergartners and first and second graders know uh, that uh, this verse is one of the first ones they learn. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Um, we. Who's the we in verse 14? We have seen and testify. I think he's talking about the apostles. because We, we guys have, have seen him. We saw and we're testifying that the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. That phrase is wonderful, the Savior of the world. It's used twice in the Bible. Once here and once in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verse uh, 42. Um, Jesus, in John 4, goes to meet the Samaritans. There's a race, race problem, an ethnicity problem. Faithful Jews in the New Testament do not have anything to do with the Samaritans. But Jesus went and met with them, proving because Jesus is the most faithful Jews, Jew of all the Jews, that the faithful Jews who are ignoring the Samaritans are not really the faithful Jews that they think they are. Anyway, Jesus goes... And he meets with the Samaritans, and the Samaritans are amazed, and, and, and they say of him, they say in John 4, uh, 42, uh, they say, I can't find it in my notes, there it is, they said to the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, now we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. The emphasis here is in John 4 is that Jesus is the savior of the world. He's the Savior of Jews, and he's the Savior of Samaritans. He's the Savior of the world. Now, in 1 John 4.14, the emphasis is on he's the Savior of the world. Slight differences. The Father sent the Savior. This is love. It is love worth knowing and relying on. Now, look back with me at 1 John 3.16 for just a moment. I want to show you something in John's thinking. 1 John 3.16. Look what it says. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Great. Then 1 John 4.9. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. How do we know what love is? John, how do we know what love is? John says, I'll tell you. You know what love is because the father sent the son and the son laid down his life. That's how you know what love is. And do you know why you believe that the father sent the son and the son laid down his life? Because of the work of the spirit. Your rescue from sin is a loving conspiracy among the members of the Godhead. The Father sends, the Son lays down his life, and the Spirit testifies about it. Here is a plan that is as big as God himself. 
shall, shall we review the basic facts? We live in a world that is desperately broken that desperately needs to be saved. We need to be saved from ourselves. The world we have made is broken. When God called the world into existence, it was perfect in every detail. There were no crying children beaten and abandoned in the foster care system. But that's the world we made. We've done that. This is the world that we have created, and God hates it. He hates it. He hates what we have done to one another. I listened to an interview with Tim Keller this week, and he was describing the differences between um, uh, college campuses today and college campuses 20 years ago. He's spoken on a number of college campuses, and he said, 20 years ago, when you'd walk into a college campus and uh, you would talk about the justice of God, no one wanted to hear it. No one wanted to hear about the wrath of God, about the justice of God. But today, he, he, he says, I go to the campus and I ask, don't you want there to be a God who hates injustice? Don't you want there to be a God who's opposed to violence? A God who stands up for the abused? A God who stands up for the oppressed? Don't you want that God to be? God hates what we have done to one another. There will be justice for us all because none of us are innocent. In love, Jesus came to be our sin bearer. He died for us in our place on the cross. God's hatred was directed at him. He died the death I deserve to die, and there's forgiveness through him for all people. He's the Savior of the world for all who will turn and trust in him. That's a new, how your new relationship with God begins. This turn and trust in him as your Savior. You are my sin bearer. That's God's great plan. It was a divine conspiracy of the members of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in love. Dorothy Sayers was a, a, a good friend of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. They were members of this writing group together. Um, Sayers was a writer, too. She, uh, she wrote a, a number of things. Her essays are worth writing. Her, uh, but she has written uh, a series, she wrote a series of novels, mystery novels, featuring a character named Lord Peter Whimsey. Maybe some of you have read Dorothy Sayers' novels. Uh, Peter Whimsey was a British aristocrat. He lived uh, during the 1930s, and Dorothy Sayers wrote a whole series of books about Peter Whimsey. About halfway through the series, she introduced a new character named Harriet Vane, V-A-N-E, not V-A-I-N. Makes a difference, I suppose. Uh, Harriet Vane is herself in the novels, a, a female mystery writer, and she's one of the first women to graduate from Oxford. Harriet and Peter, they fall in love. Peter, before this, had been an unbroken, uh, a broken, uh, unhappy bachelor, but then Harriet Vane showed up, and her love started to heal Peter's soul. Beautiful, developing story. What's interesting about that is that Dorothy Sayers is a lot like Harriet Vane, she was a mystery writer. She was one of the first women to graduate from Oxford. Dorothy Sayers, what she did is she looked at the life of Peter Whimsey, this life that she had created, and it was a sad and broken life, but then she wrote herself into the story and uh, healed him. And God sent his one and only son into the world in order to bring us life. John wrote uh, what he did in verses 13 to 16 to remind us that love and truth, they go together. Without truth, love has no substance. It has no foundation. 
Um, we don't know what love is without the true, this true story. But without love, truth has no beauty, it has no warmth, it has no appeal. You can't divorce truth and love. Have you ever seen a tuning fork and how they work? It's wonderful. Most tuning, I think, of pianos is done these days digitally. You just have a little machine and you play the note and it will show you if it's flat or sharp. But uh, piano tuners of old used to use tuning forks. They looked like your fork at home, except they only had two tines, and tuning forks are a little bigger than the forks you eat with. And, and you, you strike the tuning fork, and it, it plays this, the tone. The, the sound comes out. It, both tines, they vibrate together. You can't see it, but both tines, they vibrate together to make the tone. And without both tines, you get no sound. You can't have the tone. Truth and love, they go together so that we can know God. That's why we're so adamant to defend the truthfulness of the Bible's claims about the Lord Jesus. We do it for love. We do it for love. Here's the intersection of truth and love. Now, in verses 17 through 19, John talks about the intersection of love and fear. Love and fear. Knowing what we know about God's love makes us value the truth, but it also draws us out of our fear. Let's read the text again. 1 John 4, 17. Shall we? 17 to 19. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Now John here is writing about a specific form of fear. There is a type of fear that the Bible commands. Uh, In the book of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So this reverence for God is excellent. But John is talking about a different type of fear. And the fear he has in mind here is the fear of punishment on the day of judgment. God's love, when it comes to full flower in our lives, when it accomplishes all it intends, makes us confident to stand before God without fear. Let's trace John's argument, and then I want to talk to you about your own experience of this. John's talking about this maturity that love brings. It's a mature confidence. Isn't that the word he uses? Um, We have confidence on the day of judgment. He used the same word back in 2.28, 1 John 2.28, uh, very similar circumstances. It says, And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident, there it is, and unashamed before him at his coming. If you are guilty of a crime, it is normal to be afraid of the day of judgment. It's normal and right and good. It makes sense. But if by the love of God you have turned and trusted in Jesus as your Savior, then God's love drives out fear. And that fear that you have of the day of judgment is a sign that you need to grow in your experience of God's love. Did I ever tell you about the time I totaled my parents' car? Well, um, it was a white Ford Tempo. It happened over Christmas break. Uh, It was the winter before Kathy and I got married. She lived in Cheektowaga with her parents, and I lived in Perry. And one night, I had been busy here. It was late. 
uh, I was driving from her house to my house. I was at her house because we were making bulletin boards for Sunday school classes in my home church. So I was there late, and I was coming home, and I had gotten up early that morning because I had gone to church to help our new Awana director paint the Awana circle on the new the game floor. So I was tired, and I realized in telling you this story, I had a terrible college experience. But anyway, I was coming home. It was really late. Uh, I fell asleep at the wheel. And the car uh, went off the road, it flipped, and it slid into a ditch that had inadvertently become the overflow storage area of a manure storage tank. So it was actually a great place. (laughs) It was a great place to land because it was winter in New York and everything else was frozen except that manure. So I slid right into it. It was smooth. So uh, I climbed out of the car window and um, actually power windows and I got the window down and I, I climbed out and as I was climbing out the driver's side window my foot hit the window button on the other side and I was, I was climbing out the window started to go up I survived the car accident and almost decapitated myself with the electric window so got out of the car and I went I walked to the barn that was nearby they were milking it was the middle of the night and uh, they took me into the farmhouse and I called my dad I had to go into the farmhouse because back in those days there was a cord that you had to plug into the wall to make phone calls. It was primitive, primitive. So anyway, uh, I called my dad to come and help me. I called him in the middle of the night to wake him up to tell him that I had just totaled his car. Now, I had no doubt at that moment that he was going to come and rescue me. None whatsoever. I had no doubt about that. Even though I had just done serious damage to his financial well-being. I had no doubt that he was the one that I needed to come and help me. That's what love does. It's what love, that's the love that John is writing about here. Love casts out fear. John bases his confidence on, on the basis of what he says in verse 17. The last line, did you know this? He says, we have confidence in the day of judgment. Why? Because in this world we are like Jesus. Now, what does that mean? It could mean a couple of things. On the one hand, it could mean that in this world we're like Jesus and that we love our enemies like he did. Imperfectly, imperfectly, but still a little bit. We're, we're making progress in living like Jesus in this world. And, and that sort of love that shows up in our life, it gives us confidence in the day of judgment. It shows us that we're really God's children because we're really like Jesus. And so we have some confidence in the day of judgment. That's possible. It also could mean, though, that just this is what God does. He, when we turn to him and trust in him, he adopts us into his family and we're treated like his own sons. We're just like Jesus. We, we have the same relationship to God that his son does. It, it could mean that. That's kind of the way I lean. But the bottom line here is that our confidence is in connection to the Lord Jesus, our relationship with the Lord Jesus. Now, is that your experience? No fear of judgment. No fear of judgment. Gary Burge teaches the New Testament to uh, college students at Calvin College in Michigan. And a few years ago with his class, he was talking to them about Paul and what Paul says about the grace of God. Paul, when he writes about the grace of God, overlaps very much with John when he writes about the love of God, God's grace, God's love. It is God's grace, God's love that motivates us to follow Jesus 
faithfully. It's not merely God's rules and the fact that he will be mad with us if, you break, if we break his rules. Uh, it is, we are driven as, as his sons and daughters by his love. So he tried something with his students. He had them all, there were 40 students in the class, and he had them all write one page, a one-page essay analyzing their own lives to see whether they are shaped more by the threat of God's judgment or the wonders of God's grace. Which drives you more as a follower of Jesus? God's judgment, the threats, or the wonders of God's grace? If you had to write that one-page essay, what would your essay sound like? So uh, he had these students write the one page. He collected them all. He read them and he said, I was devastated. 90% of the class admitted privately that the possibility of God's disfavor and his wrath had shaped their Christian outlook since childhood. God's love was not foremost in their minds, but his displeasure was. Christianity, they said, is really about following the rules. Here's one of his his students wrote this. I feel like God punishes me for sins all of the time. I feel that there is always something I'm being punished for. I know that it is impossible because there are not enough minutes in the day for God to punish us. I probably should not call it punishment, but that's what I feel about God's justice. I know of God's loves and, and blessings for me, and for, I, and for that I'm eternally grateful and thankful. But I live with this fear that one mess up and I will be punished again. This young lady grew up in church. She heard the gospel all the time. Her parents were believers. And look how far she is from from what John writes about God's love. It would not surprise me. No, this is a majority position in our church too. I think verse 19 offers us some help. If you grew up in church like this young lady, you know what this verse says. We love because he first loved us. Probably have known that for a long time. He comes to us in love. He loves first. He's first. We don't come to him. He's first. Do you remember how third grade romance worked? Remember how third grade romance worked? So in third grade, if there's some cute girl that you find particularly alluring, this is how you wooed her. You wrote a note on a piece of paper. Do you love me? Yes or no? Circle one, right? And then you'd write yes or no, and you'd fold the paper and give it to your friend. Your friend would take it over uh, to the girl, and, and, and hopefully that paper would, well, the paper would come back, and it's a risky move, because what if she circles no? Heartbreak in third grade. With God, because of his son, the paper always comes back yes. Do you love me? Circle one, yes or no? Yes. Yes, I loved you first. He loved us first. His door is always open. The invitation has always been extended. He is already interested in having you come home. He loved you first. First. It won't be like this. It won't be like this at all. But some of you imagine that on the day of judgment, you stand before God and he'll look at you and say, what are you doing here? You, you, it, won't, it won't be like this, but, but you say, you invited me here when you sent your son. You loved me first. You loved me first. Perfect love casts out fear. 
Oh, brothers and sisters, will you see this with me in the text and believe it and receive the good news that it is and set your fear down? Before the ocean of God's love, you are standing on the beach and in the sand, right where that, the waves hit, you keep writing fear. I'm afraid. I'm afraid. And what happens? You, you, you barely get it written and a wave comes up and washes the fear away. And you write it again. I'm afraid. And a wave comes up and washes it away. It's the ocean of God's love. Your fear is like writing in the sand in comparison to this great love. Perfect love casts out fear. It's the intersection of love and fear in this passage. Now, there's one more intersection here that we need to talk about. We don't have as much time to talk about it, but we can discuss it adequately. Verses 20 and 21 are the intersection of love and obedience. Love and obedience. Verse 20. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. We love one another in part because we have been commanded by God to do so. He, he commands us to do it. Now, again, we have to trace John's thought. Right? It is easier to love the one you see than the one you don't see. Okay? That's what he's thinking. It is easier to love someone that you see than someone that you don't see. Well, think about these two phrases. Absence makes the heart grow fonder and out of sight, out of mind. Which one does John vote for? Out of sight, out of mind, right? Um, it is easier to verify. It's easier to see. The evidence is more obvious that you love your brother or sister when you see them. Your love takes on physical reality that, that you can actually see. And if you don't love the one that you can see, how can you claim that you love the one that you cannot see? That's what he's saying. So take the commands, take both of the commands, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Take them both seriously because they're connected. By tying your love for God to your love for your brothers and sisters, uh, uh, love, he's giving a, a certain earthiness to love, a, a certain practicality. It's not mere sentiment. We love one another in practical ways because God told us to. It's not happenstance. It's not a mystery. We don't fall in love with one another. I've fallen in love with my church members. That's not what, that's not what it all this says. We're doing what God says. And it's possible to disobey was thinking about that as Scott was reading from Ephesians 4, he says, get rid of bitterness, rage, anger, brawling. Why would John tell the, uh, sorry, why would Paul tell the church in Ephesus to get rid of brawling? Because they were brawling. Thankful I haven't been to any of those congregational meetings, right? Right? Stop. Stop fighting with each other. It's possible to disobey this command it's possible to be envious of one another or impatient or unkind. It's possible, very possible in the church to, be, to hold grudges toward one another. I'm so thankful for the men and women in this church who have forgiven me for the ways that I have sinned against you. Uh, there are people who I, I, I apologize for my thoughtlessness or my forgetfulness or my rudeness, and I am thankful to be forgiven. People say it, I, I forgive you, and they, they mean it. And I'm, I'm so thankful 
You ready? I'm going to ruin my gratitude at this moment. You had to do it, right? I mean, you know you had to do it. You really didn't have any choice. I'm still grateful. But isn't this what this says? Love one another. It's not romance. It's not falling in love. It's not happenstance. It's not sentiment. It's a, it's a life that we choose to lead. We love one another. The annual reports that we prepared that we looked at last week, there were 176 names in, of the membership of our church, 176 people. You are responsible to love more than those, but 176, certainly not less than those. God commands us to obey. He commands us to love one another. Fifteen years ago, if you wanted to, you could have go to a movie theater to see a movie called Win a Date with Tad Hamilton. I didn't see it. It was a romantic comedy. I've seen a clip or two from it. You'll recognize the plot. It's the, been the plot of dozens of romantic comedies. So the movie takes place in, in a small town in West Virginia. A young lady named Rosalie, she works at the local grocery store, and uh, she has great dreams of what her life is going to be like someday. Uh, and she enters a contest to win a date with a Hollywood actor named Tad Hamilton. Tad Hamilton has kind of a bad reputation, but he's tried to fix his reputation. So there's this national contest, and she wins. Rosalie does. She flies a private jet all across the country to California. She meets Tad Hamilton. They go out for dinner. Uh, they have a wonderful time on their date, and then she flies home. Tad Hamilton is taken with Rosalie and, and sees in her, he thinks, what will fix his life. So he flies to West Virginia, and over the course of a month, he starts to woo her. Well, this is all being watched by Peter. Peter is Rosalie's friend and co-worker at the Piggly Wiggly grocery store. And unbeknownst to Rosalie, because he's never said anything about it, Peter loves her. And he's watching this romance between Tad and Rosalie develop. Here he is, this third guy out. Peter suffers in silence. One day, he goes to the local bar to drown his sorrows. And the bartender, because that's what bartenders in every movie does, gets him to talk, right? So um, he says, I love Rosalie. I love Rosalie, and this is killing me to watch this. And Angelica says to him, what kind of love is it? Is it love, big love, or great love? What's the difference? Well, love, you get over in two months. Big love, two years. But great love, great love changes your life. Oh, brothers and sisters, behold, see what great love the Father has lavished on us. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning, and again, as we think about this subject, your great love, uh, we are, oh, words fail. Our ability to describe your great love is, is uh, flawed. It's minimal. Your, your love is high and wide and deep and long. It surpasses knowledge. How can we know it? Oh. And yet we acknowledge that your love changes us. Lord, as we think about this, love and fear, I'm particularly concerned for these 
dear brothers and sisters of mine in this church whose lives are still marked by this fear of judgment and fear of punishment. Lord, I pray that you would bring your word to fulfillment in their lives and that your love would would be mature and that it would indeed cast out their fear. You loved us, and so your, your desire for us is to have confidence before you on the day of judgment. Grant us that confidence, we pray. Increase, we ask, according to your kindness, our obedience to this command to love one another. Oh, help us. Help us to get rid of anger and rage, bitterness and malice and brawling and slander. By your Spirit, make us kind to one another, forgiving one another, even as you, through your great Son, the Lord Jesus, have forgiven us. As we move now to celebrating this, uh, uh, remembering the Lord's death through uh, eating this bread and drinking this juice, help us again to behold, to see what great love the Father has, you have lavished on us. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying,